Welcome to the Modern Mobility Podcast, brought to you by Modern Mobility Partners. This podcast is for transportation planners and enthusiasts who want to learn practical solutions to modern day transportation challenges. And now, here are your co-hosts, certified transportation planners, national experts, and thought leaders, Kelly Kemp and Kirsten Moat. Well, welcome to the second episode of season two of the Modern Mobility Podcast. I am Kelly Kemp. And I'm Kirsten Moat. And we are your fabulous co-host. In today's episode, we're going to go through six steps for addressing equity and safety planning and engineering. And joining us today, we have a very special co-host, Malika Fashon. And she is a seasoned traffic and safety engineer with more letters behind her name than I can count. And she leads our traffic and safety practice here at Modern Mobility Partners. So just wanted to welcome Malika. And uh, say hello to our our listener. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Did you notice that was singular? Yeah, I don't know. Listen. (laughs) So, Uh. (laughs) yeah, we always joke around about that. I don't know. We might have a hundred or so now. I don't know. I have to check. (laughs) Anywho, so we are excited to be uh, back recording again. Uh, just as a reminder, uh, we had season one where we had a handful of episodes there um, on autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles and rising e-commerce. Uh, we just got done recording uh, episode one of season two as it relates to overall equity and planning and anti-displacement strategies. So if you want to learn more specifically about anti-displacement strategies, definitely listen to episode one of season two. Uh, Today, we're going to really focus on transportation safety uh, and design as it relates to equity. Um, So I'm going to go into the background a little bit. Kirsten's going to talk about you know, our role as transportation planners and what we can do. And then we're really going to have Malika just jump into uh, actionable steps on how to do this, those six steps. So, um, you know, equity and transportation safety is is really about fairness. You know, sometimes the concepts I'll say of, of equal, equality, excuse me, and equity are often used interchangeably. And, and that's easy to understand how that could be done, but, and they are closely related, but they are not necessarily the same thing. So equality focuses on the equal distribution of benefits and cost, whereas equity is about creating a fair balance of the benefits that accounts for existing disparities of social burdens within a, in a region, you know, um, making sure that it's a level playing field. You know, I, I oftentimes think of the, you know, there's this image where you're trying to distinguish or really, you know, between equality and equity. And I think of the fence with two people, one short and one tall standing on, you know, and you've got the short person standing on the box. So you got a level playing field. They can look over the fence. They can both look over the fence, right? That's kind of what I think about when I think about equity. Um, So anyway, you know, social burdens come from our collective experiences based on ethnicity, socioeconomic class, our gender identity, politics, age, and physical ability. And how each of these interrelate. That is such a key consideration. 
Uh, these social burdens affect how we navigate the transportation system and our perceived roles and rights. They also impact how a road user perceives a hazard and even how they might adapt their behavior to safeguard themselves. The combination of the variables presented by and to a road user can really translate to many combinations of risk, harm, and even trauma. You know, all that to say that out on the street, a safe journey is far more than not being crushed by a car. It's much bigger than that. Um, although I don't want to be crushed by a car either. <laughs> nope. So don't want that. You know, so equitable transportation aims to allow us to be seen at all levels such that all transportation system users are afforded the same experience. The emphasis is on experience as that it, that is really a discernibly different than receiving identical benefits. So just wanted to clarify that to folks, um, you know, and prioritizing road safety and preventing fatal and severe crashes is not a brand new idea. This discussion has been on the agenda for decades. You know, there's the tenets of Vision Zero, which a lot of us in the transportation community are familiar with, but that is a federal initiative towards zero deaths here in the United States. But it certainly wasn't started by us. It was formally adopted over 20 years ago by Swedish Parliament. Since then, a number of initiatives relating to the disproportionate occurrence of fatalities within various subsets of the road user population have been implemented by other European countries and, and 40 cities across the, across the United States, um, Atlanta included, where we live. So given the sprawling nature of the topic and how interconnected it all is with many of our large social issues, it's safe to say that addressing equity in the transportation safety realm is going to take a considerable amount of time and effort. But, you know, really, what is more important than our safety, right? So there's some statistics out there. The U.S. Department of Transportation Bureau of Transportation Statistics uh, indicates that approximately 40,000 people are killed annually in the United States as a result of a collision on a roadway network. And year in and year out, you know, we've been documenting this as a regrettable statistic, but it's really getting harder to shrug our shoulders and just chalk those fatalities up to collateral damage. Uh, you know, instead, a growing number of cities and organizations are changing their perspective from a passive stance to really something that's more of an active one by examining, you know, what policies can we update and what infrastructure improvements can we implement that will prevent this persistent and significant loss of life? There's so much more that we can be doing. And, um, you know, that's what this is all about. So, the first step of solving any problem is understanding its origin. And I think it's fairly uncontested that, you know, the level of vulnerability to bodily impact within a transportation system strongly correlates to the risk of fatality. So the bottom line is, is that if you're a pedestrian or a cyclist and you get hit by a car, you are less likely to survive than if you were in a car and got hit by that same car. Mm -hmm. um, that's a given. No one really contests that. But when you tie that to equity, you know, lower income communities own fewer cars. And that means that they are more likely to have more people walking as a mode of transportation. 
And so as a result, inherently, they're more at risk as pedestrians. So this is really the backbone of the conversation for addressing equity and saving lives. Um, In the previous episode uh, that related to anti-displacement strategies, we talked a bit about the Justice 40 initiative and a little bit about the RAISE grant program, which are federal initiatives and funding resources. And, you know, Justice 40 is the accountability framework with an objective of directing 40% of federal climate investments to frontline communities most affected by poverty and pollution. And then the RAISE grant, which is the Rebuilding American Infrastructure with Sustainability and Equity, is a discretionary grant program. So um, that means that different agencies are going to compete for money for their transportation projects. Um, And this is one pot of money for that, that promotes projects uh, that address equity. So there's about a billion dollars that are going to be targeted at the national level uh, towards improving infrastructure, strengthening supply chains, addressing safety through the advancement of equity and combating climate change. And there have been national trends that have shown that black and brown communities are disproportionately impacted by deadly crashes. So again, it's tying it back to the importance of the safety of our communities as it relates to pedestrians and cyclists. And so these are just some practical steps in the right direction as it relates to these different federal initiatives and the trickle-down effect it has in our communities uh, with dealing with the problem head on. So that was a lot of information. I'm trying Woo! to digest it. I know. Yeah. That was a I was lot. Try, I was trying to like think of questions to ask while you were talking and it's taking me a minute. Um, so, so Malika, from, from your perspective, working in traffic and safety, um, how have you, have you witnessed or, you know, how have you try to address this equity issue in your work? I mean, do you have some examples, some projects where you were seeing this disproportionate uh, crash rate in areas of um, lower income or uh, black and brown communities? That's really interesting because, uh, I mean, uh, it's so pervasive, but I suppose the problem is, is that uh, you just, after a while of seeing it, living it, being in it, you just, you stop, you kind of stop seeing it. Um, and I think as a traffic engineer, that has been a big challenge because it's so easy to get, go down the rabbit hole of just looking at code that is, is already there. It's looking at, uh, a bunch of, uh, tried and true, uh, metrics um, design constraints and all of that. And it starts to, I suppose, um, dehumanize is probably the wrong word, but it it gets very clinical. So, um, although it is there, it's like you, you, you almost have to turn your head pointedly and just, and just actually, I suppose, just step back and see the bigger picture as opposed to just a set of safety, uh, safety, um, uh, treatments. Because quite honestly speaking, day to day, the safety projects that I've done up to this point have not been, that's not the first, first consideration that we've, we've had to deal with just being honest here. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just, you know, it, you just think, well, okay, here is the problem. 
Let's look it up. This is how you fix it. Um, and I think actually that that is, is quite telling of um, why there is a problem because you just you just keep on just I, I suppose you, you just blow right past the the issue of, well, is there a problem with how we're treating this? Are we looking at this the right way? Um, and uh, uh, how does this help fix this problem? Um, because it's not necessarily been front and center. Uh, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I think, I think those are, I think those are all good points. And that's why we're doing this podcast yeah. is to make it more at the forefront and provide people with some resources of how to integrate equity into their safety analysis. So before we jump into the steps, um, I do want to just talk for a minute about if this were implemented and implemented well, you know, what are, what are the potential implications to the public? And I think the biggest thing that comes out of this is that people are going to be empowered to take charge of their own safety, um, that all users of the transportation network feel that they have a say in the matter, a voice in what needs to be done in their community to increase safety, not feel like, OK, here are the professionals coming in and deciding for them. And that's that's directly to your point, Malika, where you come in, you see a problem, you look up what countermeasure is supposed to address it. And that's what you recommend. But if we do this well, then the community themselves will say, this is what we need to feel safer. This is what we need others to be considering when they are in our community, driving, biking, walking. So the goal of this is that the public can start to sense that it's not only safe to bring their opinions and their experiences to light, but that they're not wasting their time and effort because their feedback isn't entered into some sort of vacuum, um, that they're really being heard and that their ideas of what's going to make their transportation network and their community safer is being listened to and considered in recommendations. Um, I think another implication is if we do this well and we start within the community, that the long-term effect is that gradually we may be able to actually eradicate a systemic underinvestment that we know historically across the U.S. has contributed to the stark contrast in road user experiences between various groups that make up our whole community. So we all know there's been a general lack of investment for safety improvements in lower income neighborhoods, minority neighborhoods. And if we can do this on a project by project scale, eventually we can get to a place where there's more equality in the investment of those communities. You know, if I could just add in here, that's a really good point, Kirsten. And if I could just add, so for those, for our listener <laughs> um, to understand, so Kirsten and I are planners. And Malika is a traffic engineer. And so our role as planners is to help identify projects to be funded. Once those projects, and, and Malika helps with that as well, but then later in the process, someone like Malika would come in and further identify what exactly would need to be done as part of the design for that safety improvement. My point being that as planners, 
what we can do is recognizing that there are disparities between black and brown communities as it relates to safety is that we can prioritize safety projects for investment in these communities um, where they that may not have been done before. And by prioritizing them, they could potentially get funded sooner than others. And so I just wanted to kind of bring that as a suggestion as well as, as you know, kind of connecting the dots. Yeah. And what a great segue, Kelly, because oh, yes. I, I do want to talk a little bit about our role as transportation planners um, in this topic. So, you know, I, th- I think Kelly is exactly right. And to that point, you know, we have a responsibility, planners and engineers, um, to interweave equity into the entire process and bring equity to the forefront of transportation safety. It's our job to champion the enhancements of public outreach um, it's our job to ensure that we're bringing the right safety data to our data collection process and our analysis and our project prioritization. And uh, we can do that in a variety of different ways, but it really takes a concerted effort to really weave that equity throughout the planning and engineering process. I mentioned engagement, and we talked about this quite a bit in our last in episode one. Uh, but engagement is the primary building block for empowering the community and prioritizing and developing solutions that are in line with their needs. Um, we are not to assume what their needs are. We can gather the data. We can look at the historical crash rates. Uh, but you don't have the full picture until the community has explained to us as planners what their needs are. Um, In conjunction with that, you know, it's also really important that we as planners help empower local governments uh, to build upon the outreach efforts and also sustain their transparency uh, between the policymakers and the public. So sustaining the effort is is important because, you know, outreach, once the project is over, it kind of loses momentum. And once you have your meetings or you've done your engagement and you're wrapping up the project and you've got your recommendations, it can seem to the community that it's it's less pressing that, okay, well, they got what they needed from us. And now I guess we'll just have to see what they do. Um, So it's our responsibility. And I think transferring that responsibility to the local government to continue to receive and respond feedback actively, even after um, a plan or a project is complete. One of the things that I think we can start doing, and I think we can all agree, is uh, how to funnel that outreach feedback into the data analysis effort. So how how do we take what we're hearing and not just document what we're hearing, but actually integrate it into our analysis and prioritization um, and and do that in a way that it's a metric uh, that's easy to easy to understand um, but also provides really powerful information um, so Malika question for you um, do you know of any local governments, who have done a good job of, you know, trying to um, 
take this feedback and really be proactive and being transparent and and taking their feedback and really using it in their process? Sure. Um, So Menlo Park, the cities of Menlo Park and Ventura in California are great examples of um, their commitment to robust public engagement. So uh, for the city of Menlo Park, uh, they have a community engagement plan, which focuses on building an ongoing capacity for public engagement through its municipal standard operating protocols. Um, and also their, their staffing resources. Um, they, they have created a, an evaluation framework for assessing the efficacy of uh, the plan that they have put in place and their protocols. Uh, and that feedback loop helps identify opportunities for improvement on a perpetual basis. So they're committed to constantly growing, um, which I find very admirable. Um, I've also read about the city of Ventura and they have, they actually have a dedicated civic engagement and management, uh, manager with the express function of this manager is to just, um, ensure thorough and perpetual outreach yet again to city departments, schools, community groups, businesses, um, and residents, and all that just to foster collaboration and to inspire the community members to take part and take ownership and have agency over uh, what's happening where they live. The city of Ventura has a dedicated uh, civic and engagement manager with the express purpose of thorough and perpetual outreach to city departments, schools, community groups, businesses and residents um, for the purposes of fostering collaboration and also to inspire the community members to take part, to have agency over um, uh, important decisions um, for where they live. Okay. Yeah, those those are great examples. Um, I wanted um, to, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, I, no, go ahead. Yeah, I, I wanted to just uh, add to your point. Uh, that you made, Kirsten, before, um, making the feedback that you get and the public engagement and just interaction with community and turning that into something uh, tangible and, you know, just molding that into a metric is something that uh, I feel that transportation planners can really partner with uh, the, des- uh, you know, other des- uh, contributors to the design for uh, safety improvements as far as equitable safety goes. And um, I think that that's instrumental to, uh, to, to, to large changes um, and positive impact. Uh, so it was, it was uh, a great point that you made um, at the end of uh, how, how we can work together to get to make progress. Excellent. Well, Malika, I'm going to actually just turn it right over to you um, to start getting into the six steps. So why don't you take it away? All right. Thanks. So um, I just wanted to start by saying that the challenges that are presented to us in addressing safety before you even turn your attention to equity is really a low perception of individual crash risk. So what that means is um, we know people go out there and get hurt we go to work every day and come back or go to school or wherever um, we are destined, knowing that anything could happen. But we 
for survival, for purposes of survival, we kind of separate that, um, our mortality from our day-to-day tasks. So that kind of points towards a low perception of individual crash risk. Um, And the reason why that's important to note as we go through these six steps is that um, if it that that survival tactic that coping coping mechanism is why is one of the big contributors to why we it's um uh we, we have a problem when it comes to sharing a safety goal where where we're not affected because we uh, uh instinctively just uh can only worry about our immediate environment so these six steps that we're going to step that we're going to work through and that I'm going to present sorry are really about uh how we foster that attitude that we need uh to promote empathy and to promote awareness so um let's just let's just get into it uh so step 1 engage the community so Engaging the community is at the core of changing the mindset for stakeholders, stakeholders, you, me, the public, everybody, technical um, uh, committees, um, the whole gamut. Um, And messaging is key to achieve equity in road safety. And so that includes affirming what should be basic rights to marginalized communities and through that, just providing a solid foundation for reclaiming ownership of the sense of security for more vulnerable road users. Now, messaging has been really important. I just as a little tidbit here, you know that we've done, you, you know, you, you both would have noticed that we've transitioned from saying accident to crash. And that's intentional, that intentional transition from accident to crash, because it's a part of the messaging to understand that maybe there's something we can do about this. And it's not just up to, um, it's it's not just about fate. Um, it's not necessarily random, even though statistically it is, but generally it's about putting the right messaging in place and just disseminating that message. So we um, start to take more accountability and just explore ways that we can uh, reduce our risk. So um, uh, the reason why I, I, you know, uh, I harp on messaging, messaging is that in the face of deeply ingrained social disparity, the tendency can be towards feelings of resignation or uh, you know, a normalization of just taking chances in high risk situations on a daily basis because you're faced with that feeling of, well, I don't have a choice. I do this, um, I either uh, do this or I don't get to eat or I can't go to work or I can't take my kids to school. So uh, that's, that's something that we bear in mind as we, as we are engaging the public. These are the problems that they are facing. These are the th- thoughts that go through their head, um, their heads. So we engage the public and the reason, one of the big reasons, the big motivators, is to get buy-in on um, certain on on these very important ideas. Number one, that everybody has the right to use roads and streets without the threats to life or their health. Um, you don't. I mean, you shouldn't have to take your life into your own hands, like quite literally, um, going out to work to go and pay your bills. Um, everyone should have the right uh, to safe and sustainable mobility. 
Uh, so safety and sustainability in road transport should just complement each other. That should go hand in hand. Everybody has the right to use uh, the roads without unintentionally posing any threats to life or health to others. And this is actually um, something um, that's quite close to my heart. I um, grew up in a city. I grew up in London, born and bred in London. And um, I am obsessed with public transportation. I believe that you should be connected and you shouldn't be forced to have to drive from A to B if you don't want to. Um, but that's not the culture as you move from city to city. In Atlanta, I do drive. I, I drive a Prius. I have a car. Um, but I also, uh, where I can, I walk. Um, and, you know, I'll take the train. I'll use Marta. So, um, but when I'm driving out on the street, what really irks me is seeing situations where, um, you know, I could get into a, con I could have a conflict or get into a collision with a pedestrian or a cyclist. Um, and I could put myself in that situation. Of course, um, the, the worst thing is who's, uh, is the, the road user that's most vulnerable. But we also should not forget the impact that it might have on, on the other end of it, the road, the other road user. So I shouldn't, I shouldn't have to be in a situation where, um, I can easily be, um, uh, be somebody that puts someone else at risk in my car, just as much as, uh, uh, you know, the road user who is vulnerable and using, you know, active transportation modes should be, um, uh, you know, they should, they should also have the right to be protected. So it's, it's definitely very mutual. And we'll get into this, um, into, you know, in a later step. But, um, that's something I wanted to just add at that point. Uh, so everybody has the right to information about safety problems and, um, and also improvements. And, uh, certainly everybody has an obligation to undertake corrective actions. So if you see something, say something. If something does not sit right with you, um, don't think, you know, that's the message you want to put out to when engaging the public. You, you do not have to wait for somebody else to champion that. You can, you should be able to bring it to somebody and it's our, um, um, role as transportation professionals to provide a clear pathway to doing that. Because say, if I see an issue, how do I, who do I tell? And, you know, would that matter? Will it make an effect? Will it have an impact? If I tell somebody, do I call the city? Um, sometimes it's not that obvious. Um, my work in um, uh, cities uh, has given me that knowledge where I know, okay, if I see a signal that's down, I'm going to call the city. Um, and I'll know exactly who to call. I'll call the traffic engineer there or maintenance. Maybe some, you know, one of my friends might not know that that's the route to go. So that's, that's part of like public engagement. So it's about empowering people with, and in, with engagement and also just hearing their experiences, listening to them, taking them on board and making them feel like if uh, you, if they say something, it's not falling on deaf ears, as you said, Kirsten. So, uh, but also a, a, another very important thing is to gather this information and just uh, just reform it into a way that can be directly input into 
the technical studies into uh, the, the data collection and data analysis and implementation and also performance evaluation because we really should be scored on um, the impact it has on the people. That's and that's the bottom line. And we'll only know by speaking to the people it affects in the communities that we are trying to um, uh, help. So uh, that's that's essentially what uh, is at the core of step one. Um, another big point of uh, public engagement is to uh, foster a transparent relationship. It sometimes things can go into a black box. And, uh, you know, we'll say something, we'll say, we'll think, you know, we'll go away, it'll be a few weeks, maybe some months, and then you'll think, did that have any effect? Did it land anywhere? Is anybody doing anything about that? Um, Does it matter? You know, and so uh, feelings like that, when they're conjured up, that can impact how, what you might be able to uh, uh, get out of somebody the next time because they're going to make that assessment as to whether it is worth their time sitting with you to t- to talk to you about their issues, because maybe they might have perceived that you don't care, depending on how you handle that information. So uh, transparency is very important, because stuff for all they know, a whole lot of stuff could be going on in the background, um, and the cogs could be turning, but they won't see that. So, Yeah, no, I th- uh, Malika, Thanks for going through all that. I love the, uh, I don't know what to call them, tenants or rights of transportation users. I could see us, you know, putting that on a display board and that being the first thing that participants in a meeting see when they come in. So we briefly discussed this in episode one, Kelly um, and Malika, but in many cases, the communities with the most needs have been underinvested, ignored, and marginalized. And they've they've quite honestly lost a lot of trust in government, in professionals coming to fix their problems. I say that quote unquote. Um, so how do we as planners and engineers build that trust back with them? Um, to the point where they even want to participate, where they feel like they are being heard, that um, they think that their feedback is being taken seriously. So how do we v- avoid that? Here we go again with this planning uh, where where they say they're going to do all these things, but then they don't even listen to us. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really a lot about just man- maintaining relationships to see a familiar face if you are working on a project just take some time to get to get to know the people in the area you might have outsourced your uh public engagement uh piece to a task manager that is outside of your company and that might be sep- a separate uh task manager from the people who are actually working on the recommendations uh project prioritization and evaluation well there should be some more um uh wherever you can get an opportunity to integrate and to get uh, FaceTime, even though you might not be that familiar with um, uh, public engagement, get involved. So you get to hear that for yourself, even if they don't recognize you, which they will if you keep on um, attending the events that are, are staged. 
it's important for you to soak it in as the transportation professional the designer um, uh, and the planner and the, you know and the engineer. So that way you can bring that back into you can bring the feeling back and and just pour that into your design and pour that into your decision making process as you um, uh, move forward with your project prioritization. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a good point. Kelly, did you? Yeah, I, I think in addition to that, to build off of that, any time that we can implement some low hanging fruit transportation improvements that are fast to implement, low cost and can be seen by the public, I think that that provides some additional credibility. And any time that we can go back to the public and kind of paraphrase to them, we heard you and this is what we heard and this is what we did, you know, so that they see that it isn't falling on deaf ear. I think that's good as well. Um, well, so, I mean, essentially, I think that is that is how you do step one. Um, you know, you want that outcome to be that, as as Kelly said, that the public get the sense, the very strong sense that they've been heard and they've been seen. And, you know, just seeing uh, things happen in front of their eyes, they can point to something that, you know, oh, I mentioned something about this to this uh, person. I, I spoke to this uh, uh, planner or this engineer. They introduced themselves. We had a chat. And now I feel like that has something to do with what I said. So um, I think that that uh, is very powerful. It's, it pre uh, creates like a great um, impact. Um, and, uh you know, it's it's such a built in. It's a lovely kind of like neat way to incorporate equity as well, because if you're listening to community as as it um, um, there, there's their measures of social burden, what they're going through and their problems. If they steer your solutions, they are going to vary naturally in um, and they're going to be like in concert with um, uh, the solutions that you present. Yeah, it'll be very organic. Right. Yeah, good point. Okay, step two. Identify key performance indicators for goals and employ an integrated approach. Uh, this is as we move, we've gotten our feedback. Okay, we've got the public engagement activity. It's fed into the next step where we need to, we've worked out what we want to change because we've heard from the people. But then how do we measure that it is changing? Um, what, what key performance indicators can we identify to, uh, just, uh, ensure that, uh, we are, we are affecting change. Uh, so what I would recommend is that, uh, we select, uh, say one, but no more than three key performance indicators per goal. So, and, you know, to provide optimum evaluation of the overall program. Um, so what are some example indicators? So indicators may include, um, say, public inclusion into design and staffing, uh, management and execution of the program. So you'd measure that by, you know, basic quantitative measures of community engagement across the various communities. Um, and also reduction in fatalities. That's a big one. It's, it's very obvious. And you'd measure that at intervals that you would set and they would be um, in line with uh, just your project, just natural um, uh, steps in your in your program implementation plan. 
um, and they will be relative to socioeconomic factors as well as geographical locations. Okay, cool. One thing to note about this is that every key performance indicator uh, needs to be explicitly linked to a set goal. You don't want it up in space. Um, it might sound like a good thing to measure, but you need to ask yourself why you're measuring it. And will will this actually uh, be truly representative of uh, the progress that you are trying to achieve? Okay, so we've got step three, and that's set your metrics in an equitable mindset. So it's worth taking your time to assess the metrics you decide upon um, against the overarching goal of establishing equity. Um, and public engagement, yet again, it feeds directly into this. And we spent a lot of time on public engagement. It's because it really needs to be interwoven in every single one of these six steps. Um, otherwise, you know, the house of cards falls flat. Um, so when it's used to its full potential, the qualitative data will anchor the chosen metrics firmly in the real world experiences from the community. Yes. So I think that's a great point. And, you know, we always lean towards wanting quantitative data, something that can be measured with numbers because it seems to be more reliable or credible. Uh, but I would say that in many cases, at least in my experience, the qualitative and anecdotal data I have found to be just as import important, if not more important in this analysis process. Um, Kelly, I don't know if your experience has been the same. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely agree with that, that it's a combination of both. You've got to have, you know, data to back stuff up. But you you also need that qualitative anecdotal data that really brings things to light. And it's great when those two things line up um, because then, you know, OK, that makes sense, you know, and it's really helpful. Yeah, um, I I certainly agree with that, um, because to both of your points as well, um, even if you select an isolated metric or you have like a group of good, like solid metrics, and it, it'll be, it'll remain to it in an academic standpoint because it won't have the depth that is required to complete the, the full picture. So using that qualitative data and that feedback will really round out um, your metric uh, selection. Um, and, and also to allow, you know, allowing um, that qualitative data to uh, uh, really just meld with the metrics that you select will just protect against um, homogenous and indiscriminate um, application of uh, countermeasures. It'll really be in tune with what the community needs. So, um, and I, I would say after you've, you've selected your metrics and you have your set of metrics, um, always run a test. Uh, just, just try and uh, just test your metrics um, and uh, just just try to make them fail if you'd like before you even float them um and i would say you know uh, the questions i would ask when i have a set of metrics in front of me is well what sort of output can i expect from this uh to what extent does the design of the data collection method impact the output um how resistant is this measurement to data collection bias and does this output map directly onto the key performance indicators that you selected in the um, previous step? So for step four, 
we've got apply an integrated approach to transportation safety. And um, this is this is something which um, uh, we can all relate to, I would have thought. But uh, essentially, we've got traditional road safety policy and that compared to uh, 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 you know, a more integrated approach. So what I would call the integrated safety chain, um, it just provides you uh, multiplicative safety benefits. And um, what you want is the compound effect of really making sure that at every stage you are doing all that you can to um, prevent uh, uh, a fatal or very severe crash. And um, they won't work in isolation. All of these measures are uh, every every time you layer one on, it just really starts to uh, reduce the um, the risk. So the way I like to think of it is um, my toddler at home, um, way uh, when uh, she was first born and she was. Uh, you know, it was fine. It was it was safe enough because she couldn't walk. She started to walk. We are thinking, okay, let's not get a house with stairs. So there's that <laughs> one. I've taken. <laughs> let's just take that out of the equation. So that's that's me just addressing the infrastructure. I am not going to mm-hmm. put myself in a situation where um uh, she can tumble down the stairs. Then um. Are there areas that are going to be off limits that are going to create a huge problem if she gets into them? Yes. Put a baby gate there. Put a baby gate there. Be able to, you, you want to airlock her in. We'll just do that. So, <laughs> and, and we just, which, wait, what, what is airlock? What is that? I, so, um, I think it's, I think it's more we'll of a nautical a term where you're, yeah, exactly. You just close off both ends. So you've got a completely closed system. You can't, you can't cause any trouble and you can't get into any, <laughs> you can, no harm can it. come to you. It's complete it. safe space. So you put the bumpers on, you put, you keep on layering it because at the end of the day, if she's still, okay, first of all, if she falls down the stairs, then that would be a miracle because there are no stairs. But then at the same time, <laughs> if something should happen, you have done all that you can to prevent this. So then it becomes, you know, it's, it's just, it just becomes, uh, gets to that point where it is just super unfortunate. But you hope, you hope by that time, every single time putting the bumpers on, making things soft, removing the corners. You have gotten to the point where when she does have a get into trouble or she does have a, a crash, shall we say, um, it's not going to kill her. You know, it's going <laughs> to remove that impact energy. Can I just say uh, that clearly you only have one child because once it gets <laughs> to child number two, it's like bumpers. Now nah, we're good. Like, you know, I'm just saying, as someone who has two children... Man, was there a difference between what I did to baby two and child one and two. You're like bumpers. I'm I'm just saying. I'm like, we don't need bumpers. It'll be fine. It'll just make them stronger. They'll live. I love it. But, you know, and and just, and to make, to round off the analogy, I would say that, um, uh, then say if something were to happen, you have medical insurance, you've got a close by emergency care, um, you've got first aid at home, you've got a way to mitigate that on the spot. And then, you know, you have, you have insurance to back it up. So, um, for instance, so what can I do when I'm on the road? Well, 
I can wear my protective gear if I'm um, a pedestrian or I'm a cyclist. I've got my helmet on. Um, I've got my flashing lights, high vis gear on. Um, and if I'm on, if and I'm not distracted, if I'm uh, a motorist on in the network, I'm looking out for vulnerable uh, road users. Um, I'm not distracted. I'm uh, using my mirrors. I'm just uh, uh, keeping on top of um, just my field of vision. Um, uh, and I'm my hazard perception is on point because I know what to what to look for because I've been trained before I got out onto the road. And then what can we do as uh, system designers? We can just take a look, underst understanding that instead of designing a system for the perfect driver or the perfect road user, someone who's never going to slip, just understand that we are going to, and that's inevitable. So um, let's design for that level um, of forgiveness. So when that comes, when when something does happen, um, there's less of a, a chance when I'm looking at it from an engineering perspective, that impact energy is, is, ha there's less of a chance that it would be, um, uh, it, it will have been dissipated, shall we say. So by the time it gets to you, it's just a tiny tap that causes some bruising that you can take care of at home, or, you know, you live, or you might even go to the hospital, but you do not die and you're not on uh, some diminished uh, quality of life standard following that incident. So, yeah, I, that the idea of this layering on uh, different design elements to improve the safety of the roadway users is very intriguing to me. And it's probably my my biggest takeaway from this um, is that layering on. Yeah, yeah, I 100 percent agree. Yeah. I think we as planners we find an issue and we apply where we come up with one solution yeah. for that issue. And um, I, th I think this brings to light a different way of thinking about um, safety solutions in the planning process. Yep. Yep. And that part of that layering being the shared responsibility. So we can lay, we can add our own layers and we all can contribute to adding those layers uh, from different, from all the perspectives for, for the best coverage. So Step five, applying a systems-based consideration um, for program development. So this is where we commit to looking at the transportation system from the perspective of the built environment and uh, also the way in which we receive and relate to messaging about the inev inevitability of transportation-related fatalities and severe injuries, behavior-modifying policies and enforcement relations. Um, the public commitment to fair and equitable enforcement to ensure transparency and accountability on this commitment. So after we've said what we're going to do, how do we stay on top of making sure we that that is what um, where we end up and stay the course? Uh, a big thing, and it's one of the what we call four E's or five E's, depending on um, uh, what your policies are and what you like to uphold education. Education is key. The earlier you can get someone involved, the earlier you can instill a habit. We all know it. Um, just start little, start often. So start early and keep on pushing these message messages. Have conversations, allow people to form their own opinions and um, make their own conclusions, but at least put that information out there. So um, that's that's an important thing. And I would say 
as far as the systems based, it's understanding you went back. I, I want to go back to your analogy, Kelly, where you talked about the fence mm-hmm. um, with equity and um, um, and also equality or sorry, equality to equity. But then we've got um, what you'd call like justice or like where where you've actually removed the fence entirely. You've removed the blocks yeah. Yeah. and there are no obstacles. Um, and it seems like a little bit pie in the sky where you're just going to kind of like just 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 level the entire system and start again um, to address the idea that there has been like a whole history of um, uh, systemic barriers in place to uh you know for for a number of reasons um but whatever it has it's led to kind of like social inequity but uh looking at it from a systemic point of view means that you can you can start to address little pieces bit by bit based on um uh, uh risk and then you know with the hope of moving towards opportunities to instill mobility justice so um, step six, invest where needs are greatest. This seems, this is very, it feels very natural. It's intuitive, but it's easier said than done, which um, I find uh, very fascinating because, you know, we're bound by um, our own professional programming um, as well as, you know, working within um, uh, fiscally, uh, uh, fiscal responsibilities. Um, and those confines that support economic benefit, uh, cost ratios. But we have to learn to kind of, um, uh, instead of focusing on, uh, revenue or working on, um, uh, just, uh, just where we don't need to improve, we should actually gear it towards, um, you know, perhaps areas that are in dire need of improvement. Yeah. So like, I think that's a good point. Just something that I want to reference. Um, Kelly mentioned the raise grants and other discretionary grant programs. Uh, one of the challenges is how benefit cost ratios are measured. And there's kind of a strict formula for how you can um, calculate your benefits and your costs for these funding applications. And it really makes it difficult to quantify all the benefits. Um, I think this administration and some of the more recent uh, applications for discretionary funding and um, focusing more on equity and uh, climate change is that they've they've added beyond a benefit cost equity and sustainability analyses that you can do outside of the benefit cost ratio to account for those benefits that um that you just can't get by quantifying and monetizing the benefit and costs. Absolutely. No, I 100% agree with that. Um and I'd say that quantification is an issue in in both directions. So, you know, sometimes you'll get um high benefit masking um uh, being masked by high cost. Uh, and then that might give you uh, a slightly uh, distorted view of the benefit uh, cost ratio. And conversely, you've got low costs that can give an overly optimistic outlook on uh, proposed treatment. And, 
you know, I think that there's a call for it. That that's a it's actually quite a complex uh, consideration. I mean, how do you start to quantify things that are qualitative? And we've looked at weighting. We've looked at um, um, just uh, um, you know what would feed into that weighting. And I think part of that is uh, picking, like being responsible when you're picking your metrics and really doing your research. And, you know, doing your outreach to find out, well, um, is my weighting correct? Uh, because we need to find a way to, um, factor in those intangibles. Um, and that, that is, has been historically hard when you're modeling things as, um, as a, uh, you know, a, prof- a transportation professional, um, from the technical point of view, um, and just even trying to articulate that you know, and put that back out to, uh, to your, to the constituents. Yeah. Okay. Well, Malika, this has been fascinating. Um, you know, I think us as planners, we don't, we, we work on safety projects, but, um, I think this is really one of the first like in-depth safety analysis conversations that I've had. So I know I've learned a lot. I think, you know, my biggest takeaway similar to Kelly's is, you know, this layering of solutions and uh, putting up several barriers to account for fail safes. And then in addition to that, you know, I think I think we talked we did talk about it in the last episode, but we can't reiterate it enough how important it is to get that engagement, get that qualitative feedback from the communities about what they need. So um, I, I think this was great. Yeah, I would agree. The I've learned so much and just the layering in of safety improvements and each layer you add in reducing the risk um, really has um, resonated with me. So thank you, Malika. And not only did you provide all your technical expertise, but I feel like your British accent has brought us a little more (laughs) class and sophistication <laughs> to our our little podcast. So thank you. <laughs> Don't be fooled. <laughs> I love it. Like I feel so fancy now. <laughs> thank you guys for having me. Honestly, it's been so much fun. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, just want to thank everyone for tuning in. Um, again, if you are a nationally certified planner through the American Institute of Certified Planners, this episode is eligible for AICP continuing maintenance or CM credits. And you can find all of our podcasts that are eligible, which are eligible for AICP CM credits at the American Planning Association website, which is planning.org. We'll also have that in our show notes uh, for you as well. If you want to learn more about how we at Modern Mobility Partners can help you, you can find us at modernmobilitypartners.com. And don't forget to subscribe and even better, review our fabulous podcast. You can find us, and that's only if it's five star. Um, <laughs> I don't take three stars. We don't take three stars. No, only if it's five star. <laughs> um, just kidding. Kind of not. Okay. Uh, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to your podcast. And with that, we are over and out. Bye. Bye. 
Thank you for tuning in to Modern Mobility. If you work for an organization that has implemented innovative and practical solutions to modern day transportation challenges and are interested in being on our podcast, email us at podcast at modernmobilitypartners.com. Want to learn more about our consulting services? Check us out at modernmobilitypartners.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast.